turn over to the last part of Daniel, to the 12th chapter. I'm going to finish up Daniel tonight and wrap it up and, and some of the parts here that you're going to have to think about on your own and make your own decision here at the end. In fact, that's true all the way through, but we're in a part here. I say that because we're in a part at the end where there are differences on a particular passage, and I'll give you what I think about it, and then also what is thought by others, and then you can think about it and read it in its uh, context for yourself. We began with Daniel by first establishing the evidences for the dating of the book itself. And we noted that the dating was so important with Daniel because there were so many uh, prophecies about things in the future, and that if Daniel is written at the time when the Bible puts it, then you have no choice but to acknowledge that these things were prophecies, that they were, that they were actually fulfilled, and, and Daniel, therefore, would have to be writing by, by inspiration. There's just no choice out of it if the book is at that time. We noted that one of the reasons that there has been so much debate about the dating of Daniel is because these prophecies are so specific. There's, there's just nothing really ambiguous. Even the, the figurative language ones are, are very specific. And therefore, to acknowledge the date is to acknowledge that you have prophecy. And so therefore, beginning with the second century A.D., there have been battles down through the centuries over the dating of Daniel. And, and the battle again centered because if it was written at this time, uh, there is no choice. What we noted is that when we looked at the evidence for Daniel, by all means of ascertaining evidence, uh, Daniel was written at the time the Bible places him as an individual that was carried into captivity in about 605 B.C., uh, stayed into captivity for 70 years down to 535, and then lived beyond that. We lose track of Daniel uh, as an old man uh, somewhere, to the best we can understand, of about 90 years of age, maybe a little better than 90 years of age. And the contents of this book happened and was recorded during that period of time. We noted that uh, the Greek Septuagint uh, that was translated from uh, Hebrew into Greek uh, between about 280 and 240 B.C. contains Daniel. We noted that the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, going back to a century or two before uh, the time of Jesus, contained Daniel. We noticed that uh, archaeological discoveries uh, made in the last century not only tend to confirm Daniel, but they discredited statements that had been made against Daniel, that there had been several observations in Daniel, such as uh, his referring to Belshazzar as a king in Babylon, when up until the 1840s there was absolutely no record uh, in all historical sources that we had of a Belshazzar being king of Babylon. In fact, the record we had from Babylon was specific in stating Nabonidus as king during that time. And then we noted that with the discoveries, we came up with coins and contracts, etc., that had Belshazzar's name on it. We found out that he was the son of Nabonidus and that he actually reigned in the city as a second ruler when Nabonidus was out of town. And so what we found then coincides with what we have in Daniel, and yet the interesting thing is there was no place in history 
that we would have this information until these archaeological discoveries. There just simply was no record all the way back through the centuries of anything except Nabonidus. And when it's finally uncovered, it coincides with this. And so then the question becomes, how could it have been written uh, by anybody after that period of time when there is no records uh, that we're aware of that contain that piece of information? We noted also that uh, when we look at the language, uh, when we look at the, uh, the culture that is described by the individual, when we see the uh, knowledge of the court of Babylon and the events of that day, uh, the things that involve the customs, that all of this bear record of an individual that is writing at that period of time. Suffice it to say that we, the all factual evidence, all empirical evidence that we have indicates the dating of Daniel of Daniel at that period of time. Well, then the question became, uh, why did somebody choose another date uh, in the second century, about 164 uh, B.C.? There surely had to be a reason for it. And so we examined that, and we found that the reasoning came not so much from the evidence as it did of the presuppositions of the individuals that chose the date. Uh, that... Uh, as a result of the prophecies, and specifically the ones that we just looked at in the 11th chapter last week, uh, given such vivid detail of antagonist Epiphanes, his exploits, uh, his fighting with the king of Egypt, uh, his being set back by Rome, uh, his going down and, and taking, inventing his fury on the people of God, on Israel, uh, all that he accomplished in the city and the temple and the desecration, uh, uh, such a vivid portrayal that, uh, that an atheist looked at that and said, obviously, there's no way of getting out of that. It, it's, it's too vivid. There's no choice but to say it was written by somebody at that time. And so then all of Daniel got put at that time because an atheist who does not believe in God, obviously, if you do not believe in God, you do not believe in Revelation. And therefore, any time you have what seems to be prophecy, there has to be an explanation. Well, the only explanation can be that it was written at the time the events happened and made to appear as prophecy. And so the evidence then was really not there. It was just simply a presupposition that led to a theory that fit the presupposition of the individual. And we noted that any time you're reading from historians or are really in the, in the secular world, something in a newspaper or a magazine and all. One thing you ought to always be looking forward to for, to for when an individual states his position on something is does that position come from evidence that can be presented so you can examine it with your own intelligence or does that position come as a result of this person having certain preconceived ideas and then he searches out for a theory to fit his ideas. And in all the events that I'm aware of, whether we're talking about the dating of Moses, the dating of Isaiah, or any of the other prophets, and the dating of Daniel, the empirical evidence that we have favors the traditional date of these books, all available empirical evidence. And the dating of them at any other time is always based on the fact that it is being dealt with by an unbeliever who does not believe it's inspired and therefore is searching out some explanation and comes up with this theory 
because it's the only theory that will fit his presupposition. It's sort of like the theory of organic evolution. Remember when we looked at that, we said if, if there is no evidence for organic evolution, for vertical evolution coming from the tadpole to man, if there's no evidence for it, if all the evidence is against it, then why in the world has it been propagated so successful? There, there, there must be some strong evidence. And we know that what we have is some strong presuppositions, some strong preconceived ideas. If you choose not to believe in God, then organic evolution has to be true, whether you can prove it or not. Uh, if there is no God, if everything happened by chance, then organic evolution has to be true. And so, therefore, the people that pose that theory, more accurate hypothesis uh, of organic evolution, do not come to their conclusions based on evidence. They come to their conclusions based on their preconceived ideas about the existence of God, and that leads to the formulation of this hypothesis to explain things as they now see it. And yet when you see them described in science books, you would think that since this guy has a doctor's degree and he's a scientist, that there must be some real strong body of evidence that's causing him to believe that, but that just simply isn't the case. And so it is with this information here. All available evidence uh, is in favor of the dating that we have. Now, with that in mind, let's end out with Daniel and note what we have and then end the chapter. Let's look at the concrete things that we can all agree on and that all the historians, the theologians, and all agree on. Number one, Dan Daniel was carried into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, God-given. Daniel interpreted that dream. And in chapter 2, we have Daniel talking about four world empires. And then he says, in the days of the fourth world empire, the Lord God of heaven would set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. And that's the way this dream was interpreted. The countries or the empires are not named. But as we follow history, we see exactly that. The only one that's named there is Babylon, the first one. But then as we follow history, we see Medo-Persia, and we see Greece, and we see Rome, and then we see the kingdom of God set up in the days of the Roman Empire. And what we see of these four kingdoms in history perfectly parallels what we have given in that vision. And so we have there a fantastic prophecy. In fact, we noted when we looked at that, if you want to put Daniel in 164 B.C., you have got something that is still extremely difficult to explain because that you still have Rome to become a great empire and then an insignificant little people to arise and to set up a kingdom that will encompass the entire earth. And that's exactly what happened. And so that even if you were to allow that, you got something fantastic that you could not explain separate from inspiration. Okay, we move then from the second chapter and we move into some other prophecies and as they begin to unfold, we see that uh, Daniel talks about the coming empires. Uh, he talks about Medo-Persia and how that they will replace Babylon and defeat Babylon. And in chapter 5 of Daniel, you have the downfall of Babylon by Medo-Persia and Medo-Persia coming in seemingly without a fight and taking over. And we noticed when we looked at that that this in itself was a fulfillment of prophecies in Isaiah. Isaiah, the 44th chapter, beginning with, chap with verse 27 on down through the 40 45th chapter, where Isaiah foresaw the time 
when Babylon would be defeated, he names Cyrus, who would lead his army down through a dry riverbed. The gates would be open in the city. He would walk in without a fight and take over. And we noted this is exactly what the historian gives us that did happen. And so in chapter 5, we see something happen that parallels what Daniel had spoke of earlier in what we have divided into chapter 44 and chapter 45 of his book. All right, then, as we move further into Daniel, uh, in the 7th and 8th chapter, we see Medo-Persia, uh, after becoming the strong person on the block, being hit by a he-goat. Medo-Persia is depicted as a ram with two horns, and we have this powerful, speedy he-goat ramming it and destroying the ram, and then in taking over, and actually establishing a worldwide kingdom that's greater than Medo-Persia. And he actually makes it clear that he's talking about Medo-Persia, and he makes it clear that he's talking about the king of Greece, and the interpretation is given there. So we noted that these events actually happened, that Greece did defeat uh, Medo-Persia in this way. Well, then the prophecy goes on, and we find out that uh, the Grecian king, after becoming supreme, he died, or was killed. He was died or killed. And then his empire is divided up between four of his top people, and so this strong world empire becomes fragmented into four empires. And so we, Daniel speaks of that. Okay, now we leave, we go into the ninth chapter, what we've divided up into the ninth chapter. And in the ninth chapter, Daniel, after the 70 years of captivity are over, prays to God, uh, confesses the sins of all the people, realizes from the prophecy in Jeremiah 25 and verse 11 that the captivity was to last 70 years, the 70 years was coming to a close, it was time for the people of God to go home, and so he goes to God in prayer. And then after he goes to God in prayer, we find that information given to Daniel. And Daniel is told that, that from then, or from a period of time here, there was going to be 77s. Seventy sevens, periods of time. He said there would be a, a period of time of seven sevens, and Jerusalem would be rebuilt. And this would be after the command to go forth and rebuild the city. And then we would have the, the seven sevens there. Then he said there would be a period of 62 sevens, and the Messiah would appear. And then he said there would be a, a seven in which the Messiah was cut off in the middle of the week. And then on the wing of that would come one of the abomination that maketh desolation. And also in this prophecy it's told that when this Messiah came, he would make an end of transgression, uh, that there would be the doing away of the sacrifices, there would be the sealing up of vision and prophecy, in other words, all of these things pertaining to the, the Old Covenant uh, was going to come to an end. The Messiah would come, there would be remission of sins, and righteousness would go out. And that was in the prophecy. And we noted that, that it's very interesting that whatever anybody wants to do with those sevens, that you can historically look at the situation and see when the command was given to go forth and rebuild Jerusalem, and you can come 49 years from 457 B.C. down to about 408 B.C., and you can see this accomplished. 
And then you can come 67 or 434 years down to 26 AD, and the Messiah appears. The Messiah is executed within three and a half years. After his execution, we have the gospel going out. Within three and a half years, it had gone from Judea, or from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria. And then, at the end of that period, there was the conversion of the Apostle Paul and the taking of the message to the Gentiles. And then on the wing of all of this, there was the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome and the destruction of the temple. And we noted in looking at that prophecy that in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus used Daniel as speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, now, we got into the 10th and 11th chapters. And we noted here that after the breakup of the kingdom uh, of Greece, that we have some fighting. First, it's divided up into four kingdoms. And we have some fighting. There's this king of the north uh, and the king of the south. And the king of the south is identified as the king of Egypt. North of them is Syria. And we noted that uh, when we go back and historically look at this, from the north there is Antagonus. And the leader of the, the area of Syria, and then down south we have Egypt. And we see this war going back and forth as they are jockeying for power. And the king of the north has the upper hand. But then we note that there is some, a navy that comes in on the west coast. And that he confronts this king of the north. And the king of the north backs away and does not go down to Egypt or the king of the south and defeat him again. But as a result of being confronted, he's frustrated, he's mad, and he goes in and he vents his anger on the, on the Israelites. And so he goes in, and this is about 68 or 168 AD, or BC, 168 BC. He goes in, he vents his anger on Jerusalem for about three and a half years. And the temple is desecrated. Uh, we have a pagan offering. A pig is offered as a sacrifice. Uh, an idol is set up to be worshipped. Uh, the true priests are kicked out. There is no offering of sacrifices under the law of Moses during this period of time of about three and a half years. And so all of that took place. And when we go back and we look at history, we see Antagonus Epiphanes actually coming against, uh, in fact, first he went against Egypt, we find from history that that force that turned him around was Rome. That Rome uh, had an alliance with Egypt. Uh, they sent their navy down the coast. They intercepted Antagonus Epiphanes, turned him back, let him know that he's going to have to deal with them if he tries to deal with Egypt. So he turns back, he's put down, he's frustrated, and then the historians record how he goes into Jerusalem and does all that we read about in that 10th and 11th chapter. In fact, we noted that he so vividly describes what we see happening historically that this is what caused or motivated uh, the uh, people like Porphyry, the, the atheist uh, who was trying to discredit Daniel, to look at it and say it had to be written about 164 because he is so accurate uh, on the events concerning Antagonus Epiphanes. And so then that brings us down to the 12th chapter that we're going in tonight. Now, we noted that if you want to read on the history of this 10th, 11th, and 12th chapter, one of the best books to read is probably 1 Maccabees. Uh, 1 Maccabees uh, deals with the events under Antagonus Epiphanes, 
with all that happened, describes it in pretty, pretty detail, uh, you can see the perfect fulfillment of all that you have right here. And then also, First uh, Maccabees is the story of the Maccabean revolt against antagonists and his eventually being put out of the city itself and then the sacrifices being restored again. Okay, now we come down to this 12th chapter. I'm going to read this, make a few comments, and then read you a comment on it to show you where the, where the scholars are divided on this area. At that time, okay, now this, when he says at that time, the series of visions really starts over here in the 10th chapter. We've already had the 77s in the 9th chapter, and in 10 and 1, it says in the third year of Cyrus, a revelation was given to Daniel, and it concerned the war. And so we've had all of these events, and keep in mind, we divide the book up into chapters. Uh, Daniel is just there. People come along and divide it up 10, 11, and 12. So when you get here, remember that the vision really started in the 10th chapter. And that was the, and so when he says, at that time, He's talking about the very thing he's been talking about through the 10th and 11th chapter. At this time, at that time, Michael, the great prince, who protects your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations unto then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up, seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying it will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked my Lord, what will be the outcome of all this? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified and made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days, a figure in a 30-day month, which is, by the way, what they had, a 30-day month, and throwing in a leap year, you have three and a half years. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days, 45 days after that. As for you, go your way to the end. You will rest. At the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Okay, the question becomes then, when he speaks of verse 2 here, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and shame and everlasting contempt. Is he talking about the uh, final resurrection or is he talking about something else? And here is where the division takes place among the scholars, uh, the historians, uh, the archaeologists, the critics, and the theologians. Okay, 
most of the theologians, I believe, will put this as having to do to the, to the very end of time and the resurrection. The historians and the Bible critics will apply this to this period of time and will say that this is figurative language dealing with the situation at this time. And here's the reason they give. Notice in verse 1 it says, at that time, this very period of time that you're involved in. And then he speaks of, uh, at that time, everyone whose name is found will be delivered. Multitudes will sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, uh, some to everlasting life, to some to every shame and contempt. Tells Daniel to close it up, the time of the end. All right, he asks, how long will it be before these are fulfilled? In other words, this event we just talked about, about the resurrection that spoke of there, how long? Well, he says it will be for a time, times, and half a time. In other words, after these events unfold here, you've got a time, times, and half a time, or three and a half years, when the power of the holy people has been finally broken. In other words, this resurrection is not going to take place until after the power of the holy people has been broken, and it will be broken over a period of three and a half years. And he says, go your way, Daniel. The words are closed up and sealed until the end of the time. Then he continues in verse 11. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolate is set up, there will be 1,290 days, etc. Okay, the point is this. This resurrection that's depicted in the first few verses comes after a period of three and a half years when the holy God's wrath is displayed on the holy people. And then after his wrath is displayed on them, it, you have the sacrifices that have stopped for that period of time, then we have uh, this resurrection. In other words, I'm saying that the resurrection itself, in context, comes after the holy people have this happening to them for three and a half years. The sacrifices have been stopped. In other words, it comes right after a period of time when the holy people have been offering sacrifices. And for three and a half years, it stopped. Then we have this resurrection. Well, when we go and look at historically what happens, for example, when you read First Maccabees, you find that antagonists come in, and he was probably the worst thing that ever happened to Israel. And he went in and really did a job on Jerusalem, really did a job on the temple, put up the pig and offered it as sacrifice, set up an idol to, to be worshipped, uh, took the priest out of their positions, stopped the offering of the daily sacrifices, and began the offering of sacrifices to Baal. Uh, and by the way, Zeus was the, that you read of Zeus, Zeus was the Greek Baal. Same, same character, it's just the Greeks have embraced him and call him Zeus, and so they set up this sacrifice uh, and worship Zeus. Well, then after that three and a half year period, we have a revolt led by the Maccabees. And so the Maccabees lead the Jews in a revolt, and they are an antagonist and his group are kicked out. And then these sacrifices are the, uh, that are offered to the pagans are destroyed, their altars are kicked out, and then we began the process of rebuilding and then the offering of the daily sacrifices that will come on down to the time of Jesus. And so for that reason, you'll find that the historians and the, and the critics apply this as a figurative thing that, uh, that was dealing with them at that time. And it's really in the same type of language that you have in Ezekiel 37, where you have the resurrection from the graves of all these bodies talking about Israel going back to their homeland and rebuilding the city and all after the Babylonian captivity. It's the same thing as we read in Isaiah, the 26th chapter, depicting a going back and rebuilding of their city. 
And he's using the same language here when he talks about what would happen after Antagonus Epiphanes. I believe in the New Testament, the same language is used when talking about what will happen to the people of God after the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish temple, and then the people of God, the fact that they would come back strong and encompass the earth is depicted by the same language uh, pertaining to a resurrection. All right, here's a comment, one of the best, I thought, that gives you both sides. Uh, this is a book on Daniel by Butler, who is uh, in the Christian church and taught on Daniel for years, and to the best of my knowledge still is, and on a college level. And here's his comments on that period of time, beginning with verse 1. If the reader would disregard momentarily the imposed chapter and verse divisions and read chapters 10 through 12 as one unit, he would readily observe the continuity of purpose. In other words, notice he's saying that 10 through 12 go together. And he says, don't look at the chapter break, but look at it as a continuity of the vision that started in the 10th chapter. It is also apparent from the phrase the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people, that the same subject, namely God's providential protection of his people, in a time of exceeding affliction by heavenly warriors, is still under consideration. You say, and what's under consideration is God's providential care of his people. The fact that God is going to bring about his will, no matter how horrible it looks to the people at the time. The holy cost of human suffering under antagonist the fourth and its termination is still primarily revelation being made to Daniel. For in the termination of this convulsion shall be the sign that the age of the Messiah, or the eternal kingdom of God, is beginning to rise on the horizon. So he says, after this, this was to be a sign to them that we are on the horizon for this eternal kingdom of God. By the way, the Jews understood it this way, and that's why that when Jesus comes, that the Jews are at a fervor pitch waiting for the Messiah to come. It's primarily because of the prophecies of Daniel. Okay, now, uh, he says, uh, uh, comparing the tribulations here, he says the same language is used that the Lord Jesus spoke of when speaking of the Roman tribulation in 70 A.D. in the same terms. And that latter prophecy was no exaggeration either. In other words, he's saying uh, it was really that bad under antagonists, and Jesus will incorporate and use the same language when talking about Rome and what they did to Israel in 70 A.D., all those who were true Israelites enrolled in God's book would be delivered. In other words, the predicted deliverance of, of chapter 9, 24 through 27, would be accomplished. Okay, now come on down to the next comment on verse 2. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. He said there's two interpretations of this passage, both of which would be acceptable in our opinion. Now, he has an opinion. In fact, he will take the one different than what I take, but notice what he says, both of them are acceptable. Well, I, the reason I thought this was good is because he really is not being dogmatic and he's given you both opinions on it. And, and most won't even do that. Uh, most will not even give you a thought in your mind that there is two lines of thought here. Okay, the first. He says there's two interpretations, both of which would be acceptable in our opinion. It was primarily to refer to events that would occur in the time of antagonists to the arousing of many to defend their country, as if called from the dust of the earth, to their being summoned by Judas Maccabeus from caves and fastness to the honor of which many of them might be raised, and the shame and contempt that would await others. This primary figurative meaning at the same time was intended typically and prophetically to teach the literal and final resurrection of the dead. 
Perhaps it was the angel's intentions to bring this final resurrection into view. Notice he says, I believe, he said, this is what historically happened. But he said there's a possibility that the angel is also trying to project people's thinking through a final resurrection through this. All right, secondarily, in order to focus the thoughts on the pious onward far beyond the troubles and triumphs of the days in the Maccabees to the time when the dead should rise and when the tribulations of eternity should occur. There are a few places in the Old Testament prophets where a resurrection is spoken of figurative terms and possible a double reference. And he gives the one, for example, in Isaiah 25, 6 through 12, Isaiah 66, and Hosea 6, 2, etc. He said, it is evident the Old Testament clearly teaches the doctrine of the resurrection of the just and the unjust. Okay, what he goes on to show that he believes is that he believes historically that it is dealing with antagonist epiphanies and that his coming uh, against the people of God and then after that three and a half years that the Maccabees rise up against him as from the dust and they defeat him and they kick him out and they restore the sacrifices and all. And then he believes that, that you have the figurative language here just like you have in Isaiah 25 and as we said, Ezekiel 37 too. But he then goes further on and says he also believes that the writer is showing a belief in the resurrection. In other words, that it could have a second meaning, uh, that you would have the first, the literal thing that happened here, and then a second meaning coming forth to the resurrection. Uh, in the same way that uh, we, we have with the destruction of Jerusalem, that they take it with the destruction of Jerusalem and say we also have a secondary fulfillment over here. All right, personally, and like he said, he gave his opinion, he said either one was acceptable to him, and then he gave the two points of view. Personally, I believe what is in Daniel's mind uh, is Israel. Uh, I, I don't believe that Daniel has any thoughts beyond the nation of Israel. Uh, I think he's concerned with all their suffering and their anguish and, and the sacrifices that were going to be stopped, and then the fact that they, they was going to be restored and to rise up and things of that nature. But it's also something that we have to keep in mind that the, the, the Jews, up until the time of Christ, there is not much said about eternal life in the Old Testament. They just die, they go into Sheol, they're gathered with their fathers. And so the Jews work just like we do in trying to understand all of this. And so that most Jews believed in a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. Uh, this is even why that uh, Joseph wanted his bones uh, carried out of Egypt and, and, and buried. He, he believed that God needed those bones. And he was looking forward to this, this physical resurrection there. Well, when Jesus comes, though, he takes issue with their interpretation. In other words, what you have there is their interpretation of what the resurrection is going to be like. And remember the arguments with the Sadducees and all about uh, this person has been married several times, whose mate will they have? And Jesus says in the resurrection, you'll be as the angels. Uh, there will be no marrying or given in marriage, but you will be as the angels. Uh, later on, Paul will say, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, what is raised eternally is a part of us that is made in the image of God. And Paul speaks of a spiritual body, not a body like we have now, but a spiritual body. So there's an earthly body and there will be a spiritual body. Well, this was all new news to the Jew who thought in terms of a bodily resurrection here on this earth and that the Messiah would live forever on this earth, and, and all these people would be raised, and they would live on this earth. And it really is what Jesus and Paul took issue with 
but yet that was their thinking. So I say that simply to say that what all Daniel did have in his mind, because remember it's already made it clear that Daniel's tried to figure this out. I don't know. Uh, I can do, it's sort of like reading some of the prophecies about Jesus from David and Isaiah. Their understanding is just very hard for me to understand. You know, they, they knew there was a Messiah coming, they could see certain things, but they obviously didn't understand he was going to be crucified. And they obviously didn't understand that God was going to be incarnate. And yet they prophesied this, and they did have certain understandings of it. And so Daniel is concerned about this event. We can see the material happen. Uh, we can see antagonists coming in. Uh, we can see the three and a half years, the sacrifice is stopped. We can see the Jews just literally rise up and overthrow them and then rebuild things and start the sacrifices again. Whether Daniel had in his mind also, looking forward on down to the resurrection of all in, in some sense beyond that, I really don't know. Uh, and, of course, I think you can tell from uh, his thinking there, too. He said in, you know, he, he used the term in his opinion, and then he stated that either situation was okay with him, that he really could not be dogmatic on that point. Anybody want to make any comments or ask any questions? It's interesting, there's really nothing there that affects you so far as your use of that book, is there? Whichever way you go there. In other words, you can see the fulfillment of the events happen. Uh, if he's speaking of something else in addition to that, it really uh, doesn't, uh, in other words, it's just there. It, it can't add anything to it because it hasn't happened yet, if that's the case. On the other hand, it doesn't take anything away from it. Any comments at all? Okay, Daniel, again, in my judgment, a very good book of prophecy to study in the Old Testament for several reasons. Number one, it's short enough to get a real good handle on it when studying with somebody else. You cover evidences of inspiration. You're, you're forced to talk about the canon, uh, how books are received into the canon, uh, the evidences for it. You're forced to talk about prophecy and its fulfillment and to let people know that the reason that these books were received and reverenced and accepted, it just was not some blind faith. And then Daniel also shows you God acting providentially to care for his people. Uh, that although Babylon seems to be on top one time, Medo-Persia is on top another time, Greece is on top, Rome is on top, that in reality God was bringing about his will, uh, just as surely as, as the devil seems to be on top when they're crucifying Jesus. And so Daniel makes it clear, and the early readers now, uh, remember Jesus hadn't come to this earth when Daniel completed it. The big message the early readers would get out of this was God is in control. Put yourself in a position of a Jew living through all of this. Seventy years of captivity in Rome and Medo-Persia and Greece and, and the antagonist Epiphanes, and, and yet you're supposed to be the, the people of God that's bringing the Messiah into the world. Can't you see how that you would wonder what in the world is going on? If you are the people of God and, and the whole world is going to be blessed through you and you're just constantly being put down by these big, powerful countries... And here Daniel comes along and he gives you this information and you can see the fingers of God in all of this and how that God is in control. And, and for you and I today, I can go back and read Daniel and I can see how the situation was and I can think, just like this morning in our lesson, I can get real disturbed at how bad things look at the world. And I think, man, will it, will it ever get any better? You know, it just seems to be getting worse in our own society. But I can go back and read that and I think, hey, it's really not as bad as it was in the days of Daniel. And God was in control all the time, and he knew exactly what he was doing. And I could also see something else in Daniel. 
persecution of the people of God has always served as something to purify them. Uh, you, you really get the dross out. You separate the, when you get into a realm where the people that believe are persecuted, you really begin to separate the believers from the unbelievers. Uh, and so therefore adversity has always been great for the people of God from the standpoint of their spirituality and their uh, being in a situation where they would be a light uh, to the people they were around. And so we see a whole lot of things in Daniel. And then, of course, you, it's an easy step to leave Daniel and come right down to the Messiah and, and the evidence for him. Any comments before we close?